Just a quick note that the financial and business information you're going to hear in this episode is for informational purposes only. It is not to be relied upon to make any lending or business decisions as it does not consider your individual circumstances. When we first came and checked out this place, you know, we had been on so many farms. We had traveled from the Queensland border down to Bega looking for a farm. 18 months we looked for a farm. In 2012, Carissa Wolfe and her partner Karen were shopping around for a dairy farm. They knew they wanted something coastal, in an area with high rainfall and infrastructure that would guarantee regular cash flow. With ambitious criteria like that, they knew it would mean making compromises. So we expected that we were going to be milking in a six walkthrough that was being held together with baling twine, honestly, and just overgrown. That's what we had pictured. But this farm has amazing infrastructure. The dairy itself is actually um, infrastructurally suitable for a 250 cow dairy. So it's like milking in a dream. And even now, seven years in, I'll look out the window and what goes through my mind is the cattle on a thousand hills. Like that's just, I feel like we ended up with a fairy tale. Carissa and Karen run Benmar Farm, a dairy in Hannamvale, about an hour south of Port Macquarie. The road to get there winds through lush bush before coming to a tight pack of bright green hills and fields, some sprinkled with cows. It's 440 acres of paradise. Today, dark clouds are rolling in, promising rain. Carissa's come a long way from the rugged landscape of Montana where she grew up to her picturesque dairy on the mid-north coast. In between, she spent 10 years farming all over America preparing for her dream farm. She calls that decade the education years. And in this episode, we're going to unpack how she strategized them. I'm Sam Loy, and you're listening to Propagate, a podcast devoted to young farmers and fishers. This season is for aspiring farmers who aren't inheriting a farm. We're exploring different pathways to ownership and chatting to farmers going their own way. My name is Carissa Wolf. I'm an organic dairy farmer on the Mid-North Coast. So my background isn't uh, in dairy. I grew up in the mountains. I'm originally from Montana on the Canadian border. And we traveled a lot. I was um, raised on Indian reservations as well. But my grandfather had a beef cattle ranch in California. And my dad says cows are in the blood. So once it woke up, it woke up. The first area I worked at was in the South Coast area. And from that point, yeah, I knew that that was the environment that I wanted to be in. On her first trip to Australia nearly 20 years ago, Carissa met Karen, who had done her dairy apprenticeship in Pyre. For Carissa, she pretty quickly warmed to both people and place. I absolutely fell in love with Australia. I had always thought of a place feeling like home was, you know, more for feeling types and less for pragmatic types like me, right? But when I spent the year here, I was absolutely at home. Despite this newfound love for the land down under, Carissa moved back and forth between here and the States for the next decade or so. The idea of running their own dairy was still a ways off, but a seed had been planted. Both Karen and I are very much independent thinkers. We knew that we wanted to run a business together, and we were 
spent quite a lot of time with our mentors working out what business vehicle to use, where we wanted to go. And one of our mentors said, you know, basically it's staring you right in the face. The fact that you guys both like dairy, you guys both are passionate about where food comes from. We are both passionate about animal welfare. It's kind of a no-brainer. Do that. This came as a surprise. Carissa and Karen adored the idea of a dairy, but neither of them had a family farm to inherit. And they'd heard that as first-gen farmers, things would be prohibitively challenging. Honestly, I think ag was probably furthest from our mind. But their mentors were correctly tapping into a deep love, and their advice to the couple was to follow their passion. Ultimately, what made us say, right, this is it, was that our mentor had said, you know, if if you're not passionate enough about what you're doing, it's not going to pull you through the hard times. And that's the difference between what makes a business succeed or not, is having that, that tenacity, that gut, that raw thing that you have enough behind it to get through it. And you only have that when you're super passionate about something. So they decided to go for it. Right from the start, they were razor-focused on the kind of farming they wanted to pursue. Agriculture, that's forward thinking. We wanted to be able to farm in an environment where the cows could be outside all year. Uh, So year-round, we wanted the cows in their natural environment. We wanted them environmentally exposed. Because we want to farm with nature, that means that we want to... Um, have a, a commercial food production stream that works with the climatic impacts the way they are now. So we know that there's a, you know, a bigger and bigger swing between drought and flood, and it's getting more extreme. So we wanted to farm with a breed of animals that could be able to handle that, but we wanted to be able to see that we could still farm with the cows in the natural habitat rather than in barns. And we've seen some incredible, incredible, very humane barn systems. So there's not at all a statement around a system. It was just like I said, we got to pick and choose what we wanted to create. And what we wanted to create was this. They knew they were short on the business and management skills to run the kind of farm they dreamed of. But instead of seeing that as a barrier, they saw it as a path forward. We create the opportunities we want. So... If we want to succeed, then that means we get to create the situation to allow us to succeed. During one of their stints in America, Carissa and Karen made a plan. They were going to work on as many farms as possible, learn as much as their brains would handle, and absorb everything they could about running a farm. Then they would take all that experience and knowledge back to Australia and buy a dairy. Pack the tool bag, so to speak, in terms of how to succeed, not just as a first-generation farmer, not just as a startup business, you know, but then specifically in dairy and make it something that we could succeed at in general as well as being our business vehicle. And so we worked with dairies from 40 cows to 5,000 cows. So we took what skills we had and we built a business around providing those skills and then we specifically use those skills to position us on multiple farms over the long term. Carissa and Karen were in the midst of their education years. 
and a big part of this was building and developing their skills across the whole spectrum of what they needed to successfully run a dairy farm of their own. So what kind of information would we need to really ensure that success? Knowing that we're coming into it without it it being an inherited farm, that means, you know, we don't have a shed full of nuts and bolts that we can go out and pull from, right? And because we're a startup farm, because we're bootstrapping, right? So if you're in that kind of a mindset, we really had to be able to know that if something broke down mechanically, we could do it ourselves. We needed to know that anytime we brought in a high value technician to the farm, that that time was going to be leveraged off of us having already done as much as we could. So Karen did stuff from the ground up, so to speak. So she was in the parlor when she did her recording. So she was able to see what worked, what didn't work in terms of the technology, in terms of the employee management, in terms of the cattle management. Anybody who meets Karen, like she's constantly asking questions. She's one of the most curious people that I've ever met. So she'd stop the herd manager to ask them, well, why are you, how are you dealing with this this way? And why are you dealing with it that way? And I'm noticing this. What are you doing that's making this happen? Um, So she was really stacking the tool bag from that end. And then I pulled in the management accounting and internal audit side and brought it into, you know, the business, the bookkeeping side. It was a nonstop learning process. Much of that learning process was self-directed and focused on their end goal, to run their own farm one day. We did everything intentionally. There was no day that we went to work and just punched the clock. It was always, what can we take home from today? You know, we were able then to see from just that management, business thinking, and, you know, the decisions that were being made at the top, the decisions that were being made on the ground, and what went into those decisions and what the results of those decisions were over the long term. They knew this process wouldn't happen overnight. It took them 10 years to grow their toolkit in America before they felt ready to move back to Australia and take their shot. So I think we felt fairly well prepared without being cocky, because as soon as you're cocky, you stop learning. And we really, really strongly believe that you should learn something every day till you die. And the moment that you get cocky, that's when you make mistakes. And that's when you do something really stupid that'll just ruin the whole caboodle. (laughs) Uh, When we got to Australia, the first thing that we did to kickstart it was um, write something that one of our mentors calls a bird letter. So the letter was just introducing us introducing our skill set and introducing what we were looking for. And we sent it out with all the milk processors, the milk truck drivers, put it in the dairy newsletters, like tried to get it in front of as many farmers as possible. What we had in mind was that there was going to be a retiring farmer that wasn't quite ready to retire, maybe in five years or so, who wanted to see you know, their farm stay as a dairy and who was happy to have that transition to the next generation. We were really open to whatever the situation was that the exiting farmer needed. So we were happy to share farm. We were happy to lease. We were happy to enter into an equity partnership. We were happy to, you know, buy the farm off of them, giving them monthly cash flow so that they could go and do what they wanted to do. 
we were happy to give them, um, you know, allow them to stay in their own home until they were ready to leave. Like we were completely open as to what it might look like. And I think that ended up working against us because since we were so open to any situation, the pushback that we got was, you've got to be kidding. Like that's got obviously too good to be true. Carissa and Karen realised they needed to balance being flexible with being focused. They kept shopping their skills and promoting their goals around and eventually crossed paths with an opportunity. A farmer was exiting a long lease and he was looking for someone to take over. It was a property of bright green hills and fields, 440 acres of paradise. But despite their flexibility and openness to work with any situation, this scenario required a bit of a reframe. So the reframe was really that where we thought that it was going to be a joint team win-win journey with the exiting farmer. It's just us on our own, which is fine. I mean, it's worked out fine, but I, I think that was the reframe. In America, they had sat on the sidelines of loads of farming negotiations, watching and absorbing, studying what mattered to one party and what was a deal breaker for the other. Learning how to have those conversations was invaluable when it became their turn to negotiate a lease. And so with the lease that we have, we took over an exiting lease. Rather than renegotiating the lease then, we let that lease run out so that that way we'd had a chance to create a relationship with the owner. We had gotten to know each other, built trust. You know, he knows what kind of people we are. We know what kind of landlord he is. So we basically left us that exit clause. By running out the existing lease, we could develop the relationship, decide whether or not we wanted to continue the relationship. He had that opportunity and we had that opportunity. Those first three years were a trial period for that business relationship and Carissa and Karen used the time strategically. So the kinds of traits that we wanted to display, in other words, the the kind of leaseholders that we want to be, is really around respecting the fact that what we put into the land is what we get out. You know, the classic thing that we hear in this area in Australia uh, is that a leasee didn't work because they just, you, you know, mined the soil. Uh, leasee didn't work because they didn't do any repairs on the farm. They just ran it to the ground and then left. Um, so that's the kind of thing that we hear. And that was the kind of thing that we didn't want to be. So that, that period of time allowed us to prove that we were going to fertilize <laughs> <laughs> we were going to put in our own blood, sweat, and tears as if this was our own farm, um, and that we weren't going to be pestering you know, the landlord for every little thing that might break. The fact that we were in this for the long haul, so that tenacity, that patience, that perseverance, those are all traits along with being willing to invest in somebody else's capital. I like that. I mean, that's, and I say that with air quotes because that's what we're always told is, oh, well, why are you leasing? Because you're investing in somebody else's capital. And we don't think that way. That's not how we're approaching this. We're approaching this as a business and this is a commercial lease. By the end of that three-year trial period, Carissa and Karen thought the business relationship was a success. And so they negotiated another five years. We used the Dairy Australia uh, lease framework that Dairy Australia put out. And so we used that template, customized it to meet the landlord's needs and our needs. And 
crafted it to be a five on five. And because we had been building that relationship for three years, basically we had been negotiating for three years before we sat down to drop that lease. So in our lease, and again, this is pulling from the experiences that we have. So there's some great, great tools that are very important, specifically around the share farming and the leasing in terms of what's affordable and what's appropriate as a return on investment for the landowner or the owner and what's affordable for the shareholder or the leasee. So there's some great tools around for that. We based it on milk income and we made it so that it will never drop below what the owner has to achieve, what the landholder has to achieve. Um, So for example, assuming there's a mortgage on the land, right? And assuming that the landholder needs the mortgage covered, therefore it can never drop below a certain amount. That means it's up to us to run our business such that it can always pay that. But if we are able to really run our business well, in such a way that we're making a lot of money from our milk, the landowner then also gets a kickback. The landlord relationship wasn't the only thing they were building in that period. Carissa and Karen were drawing from their Education Years toolkit and bringing to life the farm they wanted to run. We've experienced such a broad range that we were able to say, oh, we like this little piece here, we like that little piece here, and that little piece, we see success in that little piece, and we got to craft what we wanted to do. And that's fluid because we have so much in the tool bag and we we gained so much experience in those years. That is absolutely one of the benefits of being a first-gen farmer is that we're not constrained by the land that we're inheriting. We're not constrained by the family nuances or the, the, the familial culture or you know, the fact that we still have to honor dad and grandpa that are still on the farm and the way that they've done things. And so we've really just been able to take a blank slate and just draw what we want and then have a go at it. Carissa and Karen knew that leasing meant their farming practices would, to a certain extent, have to be accepted by the landowner. When we approached farmers, we were very clear the things that we wanted to do that was out of the ordinary. We explained what we were going to be doing and why, because we needed them to feel safe with it. And with this particular landowner, it didn't seem to phase them. Basically, if the rent's covered and if we don't pester them, all good. There's alignment of values, not that we have the same values. And I think that's the important thing, because you don't have to believe the same thing that we do, or you don't have to... um, in that in that relationship between the owner or landowner and the share farmer or the leasee, it's not like you guys have to have the same philosophy, but you absolutely have to be in alignment. That's you know, and that's the difference. The conversation of owning the farm has never formally been discussed, but we've indicated to the owner that we see this farm as our farm. I mean, not in terms of not their farm, but in terms of our loyalty to it. Again, it's never been formally discussed, but in the same way that we refer to what we're putting into the farm and the loyalty that we feel for this farm, they've also indicated that when they do sell it, that they would like for it to go to us. What is formally in place is that in our lease agreement, should they decide to sell the farm, we have first right of refusal on the farm. That means that uh, 
we have the first opportunity to purchase the farm. And if we don't want the farm, then they can tender for a different owner. The alternative path is that we are always, again, seeding the bed of opportunity, always. If we don't buy this farm, it could be that, you know, there's an exiting farmer listening to this podcast that says, oh, that person's, you know, thinking is perfectly in line with mine. And, you know, they have seven years left and that's my time frame. I mean, and this is the thing is that life is fluid. And part of being adaptable is allowing that fluidity. And part of seeding opportunity is not saying the outcome looks exactly like ABC. It's about being very, very clear about what we want, very, very clear about what a quality of life looks like, and very, very clear about the kinds of relationships we want around us. And as long as we stay very defined in those and stay very soft and open in terms of opportunity and keep doing things that creates the possibility for an opportunity to develop, then where we're meant to be is what's going to happen. And if that means being this farm, it will be. But if it means, you know, on a farm 300 Ks from here, then that's what it's going to be. To make sure this approach pays off for them, Carissa and Karen are all about goal setting. And they do this for different stages of their life. So that picture of whether it's five years, 10 years, 15, retirement, the close of your life, but it could be, you know, when the kids leave school, it could be like, it could be, it doesn't have to be, have a year against it. It's, it's those time periods where there's a natural close and opening of a chapter, right? Where do we want to be for that natural close and opening? So uh, in business terms, an exit strategy, right? What does an exit strategy look like? But what do we want to be resourced for the next chapter? Because the exit doesn't mean final over. It just means it's a transition. So, whether that's age-based, like a retirement age, or uh, physically-based, dairy farming is very, very physical, so it wears your body out a lot faster than other jobs. So whatever thing it is that we've determined is a transition point, what does that look like? So being really, really clear um, and always written down, always, always, always written down. Carissa and Karen learned a lot of this stuff from their mentors, who pointed them to workshops and training that enabled them to articulate what their goals and ambitions were. I can't speak highly enough about having mentors. You know, they're coming at it from the end of their business life cycle. They're in a position where they want to give back. They want to see people succeed. And the amount of information that they give just in the way they direct the way you think is what changes things. From emigrating to Australia to pursuing her dream farm off her own steam, Carissa has always been one to go her own way. It's a fact also evident in her mindset, where she'd prefer to ignore the obvious barriers and approach the pathway to farm ownership with a bit of planning, a sprinkle of passion, and a big dose of creativity. If I look at barriers, it's easy to say, oh, barriers lack of money. But that's not actually the answer at all. It's like the very most simplistic, empty answer that you could come up with. And I hear it all the time and it frustrates me. Because we're not inheriting or marrying into it, that means that somehow we have to be able to achieve management of land that is suitable for commercial production, 
And because of the value of that land and needing 40% down if we were going to purchase it, which you're looking at at least $2 million for a dairy, so that's absolutely a barrier. Then that means, well, what alternatives to that? And that means whether it's share farming, leasing, the equity partnerships, partnerships in general, any of those different ways where the exiting farmer is willing to craft with the oncoming farmer a way to hand it over. If we think about it differently, we can find a way around whether or not I can go to the bank for a loan for a $2 million dairy property, right? If we change our mindset and we start thinking in terms of how can all the humans in this exchange win? If we change the mindset to, it doesn't have to be only one way. How can we craft something that is going to benefit everybody? It means that we can be as creative as we want. And there are no rules around what it needs to look like. There are none, which means money's not the barrier. Don't get me wrong, when it's the middle of drought and you need another load of hay, obviously it's cash bringing that in. But even there, it's the relationships created along the way that allow you to you know, pay your cows off with terms or work with the farmer that's willing to take part payment now and part payment when it rains. I mean, all those are relationship answers. They're not a dollar figure answer, right? So I'm not saying that we don't need money and I'm not saying money's not critical to running a business. What I'm saying is that the relationship is what drives that. And I feel like our journey is a testament to that. In the next episode of Propagate. So I gathered all the money I could together and bought an old self-propelled spray rig and yeah, thought it would be sort of two, three days a week maybe. It'd be enough to get enough money for a bit of drinking and partying on weekends and then sort of ended up living in the first spray rig for 12 months and yeah, just couldn't believe how much work was there and how big a shortage there was. Every episode of Season 3 is already available right now. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Propagate is brought to you by the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Young Farmer Business Program. Thanks for listening.